Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, we have a problem. We are, of course, situated in our deep-sea underwater base, conducting scientific research. But things have gone awry. You see, the power has failed. We can hear water spilling in. We have a rupture somewhere. We have moments to live. The problem, however, gentlemen, is I'm not sure which film I'm parodying. We are in 1989 right now, after all. It could be The Abyss, or Deep Star 6, or Leviathan. Gentlemen, uh, can you please help me? I can't see who's here. I'm reaching out my hands. But who is this? Who have I found? Uh, it's me, it's, it's Leo. I'm here, and I've got a stack of videotapes from 1989, which curiously are exactly the right shape to fit in the gaps in the bulkhead. So if we could decide which films are rubbish, we could just right. them and we'll be fine. Oh, what? Slipstream. Ah, yes. There's someone pinned under that fallen girder. I'll just move it. Who is this? It's me, Justin. Uh, excuse me. Ah. I think that behind this metal bulkhead, I'll just check. Is that the wife? Hello. Yes, <laughs> she sounds very distant because she's trapped, as I said, behind the metal bulkhead. We'll get to you soon. Don't worry. Hello. Leo, Good. what have we said about having canoeable relationships down here on the research base? Actually, funnily enough, funnily enough, at this point, you know, that's a big theme in the abyss: is people being married. Oh, oh, we must be the abyss then, of course. The wife! Yes. Well, Well, uh, shall we we begin with the uh, underwater sinkhole movie? Well, the reason... Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that we want to begin here is because we have talked at length about the abyss in the past. It's it's one of Sue's favourite films of the 80s as a whole. And uh, I mentioned the fact that, you know, looking at it today... It not only stands up incredibly well, but it actually looks like something that was made in the last three or four years, as opposed to something that was made in 1989. And I think one of the things that deserves noting in that is that because it came out in 1989, there are certain films that came out this year that I've watched recently. Renegades, starring Kiefer Sutherland and Lou Diamond Phillips, I'm looking at you, that are definitely showing their age at this stage. Um, and, And so, yeah... When you think in the same year The Abyss and Renegades can come out, that's going to be, you know, your cinema experience has obviously seems to have necessarily become a lot blander in latter years because you know more of the quality of film stock and stuff you're going to get. Well, we've we've said about James Cameron before. He's he's not the world's greatest scriptwriter at all by any stretch of the imagination, but he's he's damn good at his craft. He always kind of has been. He's a he's a he was a designer as well. He's he's a good drawer. I mean, he, he basically did design the Terminator himself, the whole metal skeleton. Um, well, the, the the fun James Cameron fact that um, I know is that James Cameron was uh, headed up a special effects crew on Escape from New York. Now, if you remember in Escape from New York, uh, Snake Plissken gains access to uh, New York via a glider that has in it a computerized display of New York's skyscrapers. And it looks like that's a CGI effect, but it's not because they couldn't do that with a computer. Like the, the, the actual thing they wanted to do was not possible. Uh, I think it's like the movement over the buildings. So James Cameron was in charge of that. And what he did was he built a miniature New York with... Um, glowing sort of luminous lines at the corners of the building and filmed it in a dark set and that's the kind of level of ingenuity well so it looks like i'm gonna watch that sequence now that's that's pretty smart i like that yeah another james cameron factoid um he also did all the spaceship um effects model shots for battle beyond the stars Yes. Or, or, okay. 
which which he basically did on his own for for no money, uh, and so wow. you know basically working into the small hours and killing himself in the process. But it, it's still quite commendable. So he's always been a very talented <laughs> guy, and knows his technical stuff. And I think that's the the really vital thing. He knows his craft. Um, anyway, I've gushed over James Cameron. We shall have further opportunities to do so as we proceed into the nineties. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact is that the abyss becomes what it is in the latter years, like now, whereas at the time people were a little bit... Well, the theatrical uh, cut famously doesn't make any sense, so that made people a bit bizarred out. Now, they did... If, if, if you were well up for a deep-sea research film at this time in the late 1980s, you were well-served in 1989. Well, I said well-served, because the other there were two other choices. Leviathan, we shall come circle back to in a minute, but I just want to note Deep Star 6 for its complete lack of anything. The the thing that counts as the most notable thing about it is that it has Greg Evergan from My Two Dads in it. That's it. There isn't anything else to know about it. Hmm. I mean, it does have Miguel Ferrer in it as well, but he's a character actor, so you'd kind of expect him to turn up in random things. Whereas Greg Evergan, it's like My Two Dads, Deep Star Six. I've just read you all of the entries on Greg Evergan's CV. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> there goes another one of our listeners. <laughs> Do you think Greg Evergood is there every week? Can you imagine Greg Evergood crouched by the, the internet every week waiting for a start. Will they mention me this week? Yes. Will they? This is the year of my film. I'm so excited. What are they going to say? <laughs> this will be when they'll highlight my talent. With a throwaway line. So there we go. Uh, moving I on. Like my two dads. Leave it alone. Yeah, all right. But anyway, um, I just wonder if uh, when he was filming that, you know, Deep Star Six, he'd go back to the set of My Two Dads. Go, yeah, I've just been filming my uh, sci-fi movie. You know, set an underwater base, and Paul Reiser would just hold up a copy of the video of Aliens, and then the conversation would be over. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so there we go. Uh, and, and the other one is Leviathan, uh, which starred Peter Weller. I think that's interesting because I think that was there is a short period, and this is within it after RoboCop, when people believed that Peter Weller might make a viable action star, and Leviathan was the first film to really put that lie out in the public because. Yeah, he's a great actor. I'm a, I've got a lot of time for Peter Weller. I'm a huge Peter Weller fan. Is he an action star? Hell's no. Hell's no. I think he's too intelligent. Not, I think, I think yes, it's sci-fi. I mean, it is a sci-fi action movie, but it's only just sci-fi, Leviathan. Uh, yeah, it has to be, you know, a, a film which has some kind of depth. Robocop has a big satirical edge. You know, Naked Lunch is just bonkers. Leviathan is just alien in an underwater research base, basically, and therefore it misses that mark by quite a wide way. It's not the only guy you surprised he didn't go, who didn't go on to have a, a bigger career after being in a successful movie. A guy who played Carl Reese and was in Aliens, Michael Bean, he, he could have been an action hero. He seemed to just disappear with, without a trace as well. Well, he was he tried a lot harder, though. There are many... Rubbishy Michael Bean. Well, yeah, they all, they all pick bad projects. I mean, this is ultimately what kills them, I think. I think what people forget about it is that people get paid quite a lot of money to be actors, you know, Hollywood actors. And to some Hollywood actors, a lot of money is not money enough. And then you're, you know, Tom Cruise or something. Because you have to keep picking, you know, you get yourself in a pressure cooker where you have to pick really big projects to carry well, on. I think. Peter Weller is more discriminated. I think he's like, well, I've made a ton of money. What do I want to kill myself for? And so, you know... Apparently, Star Darkness is the answer these days. Well, yeah, I mean, you know... Yeah, I mean, he wanted to do that. They offered, you know, he they offered him the role. He went, yeah. I mean, he did uh, a long run on 24, where he was... Uh, the, the problem with Peter Weller these days is, the minute he turns up on screen, even if he's if he's best friends with someone, you're like... You're you're not best friends with that person. You are going to turn around and so stab them in the back. It's like that's his job description. So that is it. It does fall a bit when you try and make it a twist. 
doesn't really work. I, I have to note here on the subject of of stars demanding high salaries. I I must I must note here the absence of Arnold twenty million per movie Schwarzenegger in this year. He is absent. He is yep. not present. He does come back next year, I think, with two projects. Uh, but yeah, he clears the field for Stallone this year, and and then Stallone does lock up. So. Oh dear. And Tango and Cash. And Tango and Cash. I suppose Tango and Cash is more remembered. Uh, is it yes. fondly remembered? I don't know because I've got it on my DVR uh, and failed it, to it take brought, it. brought us, didn't Tango and Cash, Cash bring us Foobard, which at the time was being, I remember, using heavily. I mean, it's, it's gone out of the consciousness now of the public. But I remember, you know, uh, well, that yeah, it's, an, it's a naval term, though. I mean, it, it, it doesn't. But I think we. Uh, yeah, I think it kind of. Anyway, it, it, I remember it. I remember it having some impact. I remember watching that with the mates. Was... I'm still waiting for the thing that's going to break Bo Hiker into the uh, public consciousness. That's a naval acronym as well. Okay. Do you know what it stands for? No, no idea. Bend over, here it comes again. <laughs> <laughs> Such as it's it's a it's a phrase to be used whenever you hear that management are about to call you all in for a meeting. Right. <laughs> As like you walk that. in, you're going to go Bohica. <laughs> Is there a film you could segue into with that? Uh, on that note, because there's probably some here we could pick. Karate Kid Part Three. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, you line up the shot. He kicks it around to the goal. Crowd cheers. <laughs> uh, but there we go. Okay. I don't know. Slipstream, maybe. Oh no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody saw that coming. That was a sucker punch. That was. In fact, the, the only thing that saved culture from complete collapse was the fact that nobody saw it. Let alone nobody saw it coming. Just nobody actually went to see it. So we, good, good thing probably, too. Yeah, probably for the best. <laughs> Shall we take a moment to okay. eat more scorn upon Slipstream? Well, I'll, right. just, I'll, just, I'll just say my bit because you two guys have seen it recently, so I think I should just stand back and let you guys rattle on. I did see it on video in the 80s, and I have virtually no memory of it whatsoever other than Bob Peck is a robot. And Mark Hamill has a beard, and he's pursuing him in his air glider. And he's some kind of robot messiah who killed his owner, or something bizarre like that. It makes no sense. All I can say, it was further proof, which we weren't listening to, that George Lucas was not the greatest filmmaker in the world, and that Star Wars was just an accident waiting to happen. When it turns to the people. <laughs> Gentlemen, I stand back. Uh, slipstream, uh, proceed. I would say there is a reason why you you don't have much memory of it. I think that's probably because you hit yourself in the head repeatedly after watching it <laughs> to, to remove anything. <laughs> um, I, it, this is one of those films I hadn't seen and I, but I knew about as this kind of post-apocalyptic flying thing, but that's it. Uh, and then, you know, with some kind of... I remember, I remember sitting down with my anticipation of watching it with Leo a little while ago, uh, and then kind of, oh, well, you know, there's, here's, here's a little gem, possibly, that I haven't seen. Oh, my God. Oh, George Lucas, you thought to yourself, oh, how bad could it be? My exactly. goodness, man, we never learn with George Lucas, do we? The, probably the worst film I have ever seen. No. It appears to be stapled together from various kind of... Uh, it's filmed all over the place. Part of it looks like Cumbria, part... They, they kind of move two feet and it's in Spain. It's, 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 it, the plot makes no sense. You're following this kind of pilot for half the film and then suddenly you kind of cut to these, a lot of these people discussing something. You've never been introduced to them. Very importantly, discussing something of which you as the audience have no clue what's going on and you're meant to somehow get involved. It is a mess. It is utterly awful. I, I, I am sorry that I ever watched that thing. Because it's ingrained into my brain now. Oh, yeah, I, have, I have sat yeah. here absolutely hysterically laughing because to this day, <laughs> just in watching Slipstream and the rants that have come afterwards, is known in our household as the incident. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the real reason you're moving house. Yes. <laughs> to make films certainly George Lucas does know how to make films you know he might be rubbish at various things but you know he's capable of putting together a cast 
that's coherent. And, you know, <laughs> but it's just like suddenly everyone went, what's films? I don't know. Let's just get some cameras. We'll just film it wherever we can. Let's just make up the plot as we go and just bring in whoever B listers and C listers we can find if they're not doing anything much. I think and that it's it, just awful. <clears throat> I think there was a knock at the door one day and I said, George, we've come for the script. And he went, oh, yes, I've got it just here in my study. If you could just wait here in the lounge. And then, you know, they heard the sound of someone picking things out of a, a waste paper basket, smoothing them over and then stapling them together. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, don't don't even watch it out of curiosity. Just save your life. Do not, <laughs> please, please, do not watch this film. So there we go. That's that's our, a public the, service announcement. The only on behalf of government uh, health warning. Talking of things that slip or indeed stream, but more slip by unnoticed. We noticed that Licence to Kill, 16th of the James Bond series, starring Timothy Dalton, came out this year, and Ian noted that we hadn't, in fact, at any point previously discussed the first Timothy Dalton one. Living Daylights. Um, so, yes, that that's how unremarkable and forgettable the Living Daylights was. We didn't even notice it when we were talking about whatever year that came out. I feel sorry for Timothy Dalton, really, because I think, uh, actually, he was a very good Bond, but just the films sucked. <laughs> uh, because I think he's got a trail of Bonds. You know, he's very close. You know, I mean, he, he was he's not that jokey kind of Bond. It's, he's very credible, you know, as Bond. He's kind of, you know, he's kind of dangerous and and uh, he's rather, you know, psychopathic in places. And I think he kind of captures that, but the, you know, the, obviously the friendlier Bonds have not done, but it's just that they are some pretty bad films. I, I think, I think they, yeah, they did obviously go back, after Roger Moore, you go back to the books and have a more serious Bond because Roger Moore was the more comedic Bond. Not comedic, but, you know, he had that lighter tone. He was humorous movies. Uh, so obviously you go back to Bond's roots, and Bond is essentially a government hitman. Uh, mm. So, uh, but we might as well discuss both of them, because this is our one moment of Dalton we're going to have, I think. Incidentally, incidentally, it was in 87, The Living Day, that's came out, and I accidentally must have omitted it from the list. Sorry, uh, okay. my bad. Sorry, um, so carry on. Yes, well... People were reasonably excited when Living Daylights came out because I think everyone was 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 ready for Bond to to regenerate, so to speak. Um, mm. And I see, I seem to come away with it as a kid, feeling it was an acceptable piece of action time. Looking back at it now, you can see it's like, oh, they've changed the Bond, but in so many ways, you can see a lot of the tired things that were going through Bond at the time. But the general comment I got about Dalton when I looked into it was that everyone kind of says, yes, he was definitely acting in the first movie. In the second movie, he was kind of phoning it in. And I watched the second movie relatively recently. I kind of see what they mean. I mean, I think, you know, uh, he is in that one out for revenge. He's not on a mission. So you can understand mm. him being a bit more dour. But I can kind of see why some people would say, well, he just kind of says his lines and moves on to his next scene. And uh, License to Kill is the highest rated uh, certification ever given to a Bond film at 15. So, what was the great innovation of James Bond? Well, obviously where it has to go is become more adult, more violent, uh, more blood, more gore, people being killed by sharks, people's heads exploding, um, people being incinerated alive and being fed into mince machines. So, uh, what do you guys uh, recollect of of the revengeful Bond movie of this year? I've only actually seen it. I went to see it in the cinema at the time. Um, well, you were old enough to do so, my friend. Uh, not. Well, no, I wasn't too far off, but technically, no. Uh, shouldn't have. Breaking the law. Breaking <laughs> yeah. the law. <laughs> um, it, I was at that age where nobody was going to question that I was 15. Let's put it that way. You know, even though I technically wasn't. Nobody asked me for ID. I got away with it. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I went to see it enjoyed the heck out of it i thought it was brilliant haven't seen it since but i really i thought wow that's that's more that's more like it so yeah that was my impression of it and i think that as to phoning in you're probably right and what i would probably say is this is an era i think these days if you've got a bit of a problem as a director with an actor not believing in the project because of digital you can hash something together. So, look, this is the movie you're in. Look, uh, you know, if you just bring it up, this will be a really good movie. Those days, I think that when he made The Living Daylights, he came in with all this, 
you know, well, I'm Timothy Dalton, so I think we should be a bit more this and a bit more that. And everybody went, yes, Timothy, no, Timothy, three bags for Timothy. And then the Living Daylights came out, and it probably wasn't what he'd had in mind. They just took it away from him and went, you know, because sometimes actors want a little bit more control. He's playing James Bond, and he says, I'm bringing this to Bond, so can we play this up? You know, just suggestions, really. I don't think that he was an egomaniac. I think he was just aware that the thing that had been previous to that was what a view to a kill and um and while we're at it Flash in the God. same year as view to a kill no what was yeah the thunderball remake never say oh, never again. Never again yeah yeah so he was aware that he was picking the reins up of something that was really looking tired so he's yeah. trying to bring some well i'll bring a bit more dalton to this and in order to print that out why don't you try this and why don't you try that and they just ignored him they and did stuff they certainly trumpeted his sex appeal when he came in in living daylights and they gave him a flash new modern car to drive as well, as opposed to a, the classic vehicle he normally had. Um, well, I'm not sure that. I mean, think because Timothy Dalton's possibly not an idiot. He's like, no. are these really the things we want to be concentrating on? Roger Moore is Roger Moore. I'm Timothy Dalton, Shakespearean actor. I mean, in, ironically, things that Timothy Dalton probably said in 1987 are things that have become staples of the of, of you know new Bond uh, in the person of Daniel Craig, Timothy mm. Dalton. If he spends much time thinking about it at all, he's probably a little bit annoyed that it was him. And then he got shoved out of the way for Pierce Brosnan. And then when Pierce Brosnan left, Daniel Craig got all his stuff that he well, wanted to do. I, I think actually um, he can certainly play Bond. He, he's that good an actor. But I think it was a bad fit for him as a person. I don't think his personality lent him to become a highly popular well-known, famous Hollywood actor in a famous franchise. I don't think that was Timothy Dalton's necessarily the shtick where he wanted his career necessarily to go. I don't think he was ready ready to adapt to it as well. The other thing I know about Timothy Dalton as well, because you can tell this from other things he has done, is that he likes a part that has a bit of fun in it. If you look at him in Flash Gordon... And if you look at him in The Rocketeer, as two yes, other genre movies he's done, he likes a little bit of camp. Yeah. And they tried to take all that out of James Bond at that point. I think it left him feeling a bit hollow mm. about the whole business. Because, you know, have you seen The Rocketeer, Ian? Of course I've seen The Rocketeer. Of course I've seen The Rocketeer. I only saw it last, you know, like in the last six months. So it's not a, it's not a shoe in. I, but yeah, his part in that is has oh. this kind of air of stupidity and silliness that he completely chews the scenery with. It's like his fuel is, this could be ridiculous, but I'm going to Dalton it up. And I think that's kind of what he thought was going to happen in Bond. But then they were so sensitive about Bond's image at that point, they kind of sucked all that out of it. And I think he was left, well, I've got no material now. I mean, in a way, in a way, The Living Daylights would have been better if they'd cast Steven Seagal as James Bond in that. Yeah, I think you know he, 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 they could have been great because um, he would definitely would have could have could have been capable in, in the right film, but it just didn't happen. He wasn't quite ready yet. The makers to do something. No. So, <clears throat> and when they did come back, it was my goodness. It's quite a while until it comes back as well. It's, it's like oh, yeah. it's like 80, 80, uh, 95. Um, anyway, so alas, off sales, you know, Bond number four uh, after only two movies. Tragic. Uh, where should we go next? Justin, I think it is your turn now, definitely. Uh, peruse the menu and, and what whets your appetite. Oh, now. Well, it's a, I have to say it's a, it's a good year and I think... Uh, I am going to plumb for. Uh, sorry, my my uh, my page is stuck, so I'm stuck with. with I'm, I'm stuck. With, oh, Bat, I'm going to have a Batman. Batman. Uh, you know this. I've, I've, I've always loved Batman, and I, so I was kind of waiting with bated breath that actually it should it should arrive on the screen, um, and so I enjoyed it. I mean, I think you know it's it. Looking back at it, it's obviously 
as you'd imagine, it's very Tim Burton-ish because, you know, he fuses that into all of his films. Well, no, looking back on it, I always think it's quite plain because apparently later on it came out that when Tim Burton was set, they said, they went to Tim Burton and said, well, we want to do a Batman movie. How do you feel about that? He's the first thing that came out of his mouth was, oh, I used to love that TV show. Yes. That's the first thing he said. Which these days would get you sacked because everyone's so sensitive that everyone who directs anything to do with a comic book, oh, I'm such a big comic book geek, he, they said, buying all the back issues and reading them in their bedroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There will be a written test on whether you really do like the events <laughs> Joss Whedon. You know, Joss Whedon's there like, yeah, yeah, ask me what you want. <laughs> I know it all. Um, but yeah, so... There's really, I have to say, there's only really one thing that annoys me about Batman, and that is the fact they couldn't get the bloody symbol right on his chest. Which wound me up the first time I saw it. I was like, "Please." Well, the, sim- the symbol changes all the time, doesn't it? It's famous. No, no. It's you look at it. You know, it's, it, it might well have a different style, but anyway, it's wrong. If you look at it, it's wrong. They they, they changed it. It's, I mean, it's right everywhere else. Every other part of the film. Oh, right with it's you. All the other gadgets, but the actual symbol on his chest is actually wrong. And they did change it for the second one. So you know, as an artist, that wound me up constantly. But. I was quite surprised um, with the, you know, because obviously there was a bit of a controversy over, you know, you, you're going to get this guy to play Batman, but actually it, it kind of worked for me. I, you know, I, 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 I liked it, and I still, I, I, I still like it. It's, it's, it's not the Batman in my mind, but you know, it's a very theatrical, um, the short, you know, beautiful and- kind of uh, uh, vision of Gotham City. Which, if we hadn't had that, we wouldn't have the sublime. Batman the Animated Series, you know, it no. created, you know, that's a very strong look, that film, and I, I kind of applaud it for that, and it might have its kind of weaknesses and various things, but I still I still enjoy it. The, the, shorthand, uh, the shorthand review of that Batman movie is Bruce Wayne upstaged Batman and Jack Nicholson upstaged everyone. <laughs> uh, I just think, um, I mean, obviously we've seen other incarnations, and, and uh, but, you know, I've got... I'm, I'm always a sucker for kind of visual directors, and it's you know it, I mean it might be a cartoon in the kind of in, in the kind of look of it, but I mean I think Jack Nicholson is a very strong character in it. But I think he's the Joker. Okay, he doesn't physically look like the Joker. I remember thinking like Jack Nicholson, but you know I it, I, I I I enjoyed it. For me, it didn't it, it, he didn't overpower that. No. I think he felt you want someone larger than life. You're playing the Joker, you know, and and he he embodied that, you know. Sort of my thing going in. I mean, it's it's worth. Batman is going to become a, a, a returning friend to us as we proceed forwards in time, uh, and and this is this is the first time for a generation we have Batman being taken reasonably seriously. Uh, and I, I just remember the kind of hype and expectation about this. I mean, everyone says, "Oh, everyone, just, everyone, all oh, remembers the Adam West uh, <laughs> comedy series." Everyone was excited when we when they, we had those leaked shots of the studios uh, and looking down from above, and we could see the shadowy, black armored Batman. Everyone was like, "Oh, that looks fantastic." Uh, and yeah, did we had oh, that theme by Prince. My brother brought the single, so I, I'd heard yep. that a few times. Uh, and also worth noting, this is a whole a whole new certification in the UK seemed to be invented so twelve year olds could go watch Batman, uh, but presumably no, no children younger than that. Um, and the, the Joker, yes, Jack Nicholson. Uh, highly memorable as a Joker. I mean, the Joker's obviously been somewhat superseded by another performance since then. But it, it was it was an, an enormously influential and scary performance at the time. And Jack Nicholson, what a clever clog. So it was in his contract, they had to pay him again if they made right. another Batman sequel, regardless right. of whether he was in it or not. And as <laughs> they made three more sequels, you can bet he really did have a big grin on his face. Yeah. No makeup required. Um, so yeah, so there is there is actually one person <clears throat> in the world who is pleased that that Batman and Robin got made, and his name is Jack Nicholson. I think that as a counterpoint to this, because this is Batman is the big superhero movie of 1989, and from a quarter of a century later, let's see what Marvel were doing in 1989. Oh, that's right, The Punisher. 
with Dolph Lundgren. Yes. And it's just like, and 25 years later, you're like, yes, but wow. Famously, though, he's, he, he's not really the Punisher. He rides a motorbike and shoots people. Uh. But, you know, I mean, you've got to remember at the time that to have anything made from a comic book was like, thank God. But, you know, we, it took a long time for them to actually marry up with, you know, the actual source material. Well, so, about, about 20 years. <laughs> We'd had Captain America movies, we'd had TV movies, and we'd had Spider-Man yeah, TV movies at this point. those things, and they didn't really understand what the character was, and so you, you had people that... So it very much... you know, And the same with Batman. You, you basically, the director would do their own version of that character. What they, as much information they knew about that would be there. So, Bat, so Tim Burton's Batman is more visual. You know, it's all about the gothic... Um, and the stylings and the fantastic Batmobile and all those kind of things. But, you know, whereas other people that understand different aspects of it and more, more fans of the character will bring out other things. So, But at the time, it was very individual. It all depended on, it was hit and miss on who the director was and how it happened to happen. Now, now you know, you, it is accepted that if you go to see a, a, a superhero film, it is at least going to be like the source material, you know. That, and That's a very interesting point. Available. Because I think basically what you're, what you're... that's why it's geekness as well. It's like once upon a time, you know, most people aren't going to be that familiar with those things. Whereas now, a lot of people are, and and it's very difficult to make just your own version of things. You know, they did it with Batman, uh, the recent ones. You know, but it's it's but still that was true to the character more than in the past. Well, true to a particular interpretation of the character, sort of the sort of Frank Miller. Yeah. But anyway, what you said was quite interesting because it makes me think that their approach to movie making in this time was it was just another aspect of merchandising, and a much way that toys of, of superheroes could be a bit of a knockoff. I mean, yeah, occasionally you would find like Spider-Man on the Spider-Man bike. What was yeah. what was all that about? It's it's almost like the same thing with with uh, comic book movies. It's a it's a bit of a knockoff feel about it all. I think that given the fact that Marvel have demonstrated. This insane, like deep-rooted, like the, the Doctor Strange animated movie, which was made in two thousand and five, six. They're still, you know, we know there's going to be a live-action movie, but we're not going to see it before twenty seventeen. That means that they've been and they have actually been planning this Doctor Strange live-action movie for now about ten years, and they've got so they've got this insane long-term vision. And I think the reason why they were allowing Dolph Lundgren to be the Punisher or, you know, the little low-key kind of Marvel spin-off projects that they they released was precisely because they'd been burnt, you know, Roger Corman's Fantastic Four and stuff like that. And they were like, no, until people are ready to take, a, you know, and I think they were probably using this phrase in 1989, a Marvel Cinematic Universe, seriously, we're not going to get involved. And that's what why you don't get any projects because they won't license anything because they don't want it to be like just another knockoff yes. spin-off. They want it to be its thing. And I think at the time anybody would have told them it'll never work. It's insane. You are insane. Why don't you just sell us the rights to do this stuff? And yeah. look who's laughing now. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, and the Punisher is a safer bet for for making films for people who don't know anything about comics. You know. The Punisher is pretty much, it's barely a superhero film, is it really, let's be honest. That character, it's a, vigil, it's a vigilante uh, story, and, and you, you, you can quite happily market that to your fans of, you know, uh, Dolph Lundgren and, and, and Schwarzenegger, all that kind of stuff. Um, and they don't have to even admit being remotely geeky by understanding what the Punisher is. So it was a safe bet, I think. Well, to be fair, the Punisher's a third-rate Spider-Man villain. That's who he is, really. Technically, he's one of Spider-Man's people. You know what I mean? He's not as says he's not even one of the first-rate Spider-Man villains. He's just kind of there in the background of the Spider-Man comic. But yeah, but that, um, so, well, so I mean, he's he's a, a anti-hero. I mean, he has yeah. But an, he's he's always yeah. just he, but, he's a bit like Morbius. He's one of those. Spider-Man yeah. villains who's just kind of there in the background. The, who Spider-Man has this yeah, debate yeah, 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 yeah. on: well, do I that, like him or uh, not like yeah, him? And you've hit a key point there. Yeah. That the Punisher and I'm sure Marvel are fully aware of this. 
the Punisher as a character by himself has limitations. But the Punisher, when introduced into the flow of a universe that contains Iron Man and Captain America and Thor and you know, so on, and Spider-Man and, yeah. and so on, is a very useful foil for talking about types of vigilante justice yeah. and comparing, say, Captain America versus the Punisher, Tony Stark versus the Punisher. Yeah. You know, that, that it's like a villain who's not just like a moustache twirling it's a difficult it's, moral it's the problem same with Morbius and Spider-Man. <clears throat> it's that thing of how do you how do you kind of be against somebody who's kind of doing the right thing but the wrong way yeah it's that it's that thing yeah exactly that whole punisher thing yeah. so he's kind of a third-rate character yeah even, i mean even by marvel one standard. of the yeah one of the standout moments in the civil war series I mean, the first thing that they did, which I think was a very smart move in the Civil War series, is that the government is, and the, the sort of American people side, the people, the guy who's supporting the Superhero Registration Act, is not Captain America, it's Tony Stark. And that's smart, because Captain America goes back to his roots and says, this isn't what I fought for, this isn't the freedom that I fought for, I'm going to be with the rebels. So now he's actually against the government that he's always striven to serve. So that's the first interesting dramatic point. But then at one point, the Punisher turns up on the rebel side, and within about ten minutes, he's like shot three people. Yes. Uh, and when, what happens is he comes in, and there's all these people going get out of here, we don't want to see you. And Captain America goes, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe this is, you know, maybe he's got a point. Punisher shoots three people and everybody's looking at him like, what the hell have you done? <laughs> and Captain America walks up to him, punches him in the face and says, get out. And then he walks out of him and goes, I don't know what I was thinking. All right, moment <laughs> over. And it's like, it's moments like that, yeah. that you're like, that's what the Punisher is for, yeah. to show you why the other heroes are actually heroes, as opposed to the Punisher, who's much more in a grey yeah. area. Yeah. Can I mean, you tell who the two Marvel geeks are? Yeah, this? okay. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, there was, there's one, there, I mean, the other person that the Punisher goes up against brilliantly is Daredevil, because, of course, Daredevil really treads that fine line. He's a lawyer and a vigilante. And um, I've got a Daredevil series in which the Punisher turns up and, and like, does this whole thing about, I'm going to shoot this villain through the head. You would try and beat him up and then take him to court and then he'd get off. You know, what's the point? I, you know, and, and you know, if you can, and then it, it becomes that, that thing of them having these arguments and that's what the Punisher is for in a movie on himself he's got no one really to have that debate with and that has always been a perennial problem of the comic series is that he has to continually run up against people who tell him he's doing the wrong thing and then in a comic on his own he has to be doing the right thing because it's his comic so yeah but yeah so there we go so we, we, now, that was that was far through. longer than I was expected to talk about the Punisher Except, of course, that we didn't actually talk about that movie because it was Dolph Lundgren in leather on a motorbike yeah. shooting people. Anyway. And that was it. There was no Punisher in it. It wasn't a Punisher movie, not really. Uh, I, uh, shall we talk about Bill and Ted? We can talk about Bill and Ted, yes. Let's do yes. that. <laughs> I mean, the thing about this is, is, to my mind, you quoted movies before Bill and Ted, but it didn't... It didn't offload upon you an entire cultural sort of narrative where you walked around a place going, excellent, and stuff like that. And, um, (laughs) yeah, and all this kind of stuff. That was the first movie I know of that where people, it actually transplanted all of the things that the characters said into that, you know, you could tell everyone was a fan of Bill and Ted and everybody did Bill and Ted stuff. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, the interesting thing for me is, uh, I, I'm imagining if you were to ask Keanu, well, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter want to make a sequel to it to this day. Do, yeah. they, clearly, well, they clearly regard it fondly. But yeah. I know that Keanu Reeves is a philosophical dude. So I'd like to know what his, you know, this is what broke you, Keanu. You know, the Matrix <laughs> may have been what propelled you into another stratosphere. But what made you in that position was this thing about these two brainless rock geeks who travel through time in a naturally being being a time travel story i had to approach it from a completely different direction so i saw bogus journey first i saw bogus journey repeatedly for some reason and then eventually i got around to seeing bill and ted's 
excellent adventure. People always tell me that their, their telephone box thing was some kind of homage to Doctor Who, and I really don't see it. I, I think it's purely, I think it's purely there for the same reason Doctor Who is in a phone box. It's a cheap prop. Well, it's exactly. <laughs> I mean, for the Christmas episode, it's like I said, I came to the script and I was like, well, we're obviously not going to do a blue police box, but if you did have a time machine that people can walk in and out of that didn't take up too much space, and what was would cheap. It, yeah. And it's like, that's pre- we came up with a Rubik's Cube, like a model Rubik's Cube, um, which is fine. That works. It's a joke for us, especially bearing in mind the fact that we do audio plays. So you don't actually have to build the bloody thing. But, the you know, the fact is that anything that kind of box shape, like a wardrobe or a whatever it is, that's what it should look like. And also, it's funny because when, you know, at the end, when they've got everyone loaded up in there having the glass front on that you can see this box full of, you know, clearly you couldn't fit the 15 people that are meant to be in it, but that's the fun of it, you know. Yes. It's yes. a very visual kind of... And I, I mean, I this, this film... Maybe came, it's bigger on the inside. Yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> they don't look like it is, particularly by the expense of the people crushed inside. But um, I this came at a time when, at this time, I was involved with a kind of a big group of uh, friends... And we would regularly get together and watch films en masse with like, I'm talking like 20 plus people, big parties. So this was absolutely a staple of that. You would get very quotable films, you know, you'd watch it. And I would have watched this dozens of times in that situation. Everyone's having a laugh. You know, there's probably been a drink involved. Everyone's quoting. And so it was very, uh, it was a, it was just kind of came at the right time for that. So I've got incredibly fond memories of uh, of this film. And um, and I think the spirit of it, it's just stupid and fun, you know. And like all things of, of the 80s, it had a cartoon series that came after it as well. So, well, yes. <laughs> it was pretty much unwatchable. Yes. And I can tell you that because I tried to watch it. And yeah. even with all the goodwill I had, it was one of my favourite films ever. I couldn't sit through episodes of that cartoon series. No. Which is odd, if you think about it, because, honestly, if anything could have been turned into a cartoon series that had a chance of being acceptable, surely this is it. I mean... I don't know. I think just reducing the age group down, obviously, that that would would encompass being a cartoon series, I think just took that edge off of it, even though it's not not what you'd call an adult film. Um, Uh, it It was our age, you know, it was my generation of watching it, and cartoons wasn't that audience wasn't really so i don't think think if if the cartoon series had followed in the era of like something like animaniacs it might have stood more of a chance slightly too early yeah yeah absolutely Uh, my closing comment i believe at the time after bogus journey there was they were like no we're not going to make another bill and ted movie but we might do later because i think it'd be interesting to revisit the characters when we're both 40 years old I think I think right. that moment has most definitely arrived by now. So I'm not surprised there's churnings in the wind. And there is there is lots of talk of a, of a third one, and I I look forward to it. I think it'd be cool. Well, that's I mean, what's interesting to me is that that is an idea where you could at last have one of these sequels, like you know Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where a long time has passed and the characters have got older, but it's actually a plot point now, and that's yes. actually like a real plot point that these are ageing rockers who still are a bit goofy. And I think that's going to be great if, it, you know, if it comes off. Because, you know, it's in that rumour mill area where you're not even sure that that's, that's what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. Talking to time travel, of course, uh, Back to the Future Part 2 this year. Oh, so we'll, yes. just, we'll just note that that's in existence because obviously <laughs> one day... Oh, and of course, yes, while we're in the time travel area, uh, Sue, of course, will want to talk about Millennium. Come and talk about Millennium, Sue. He's fabulous. Yes. He's That's good. <laughs> no, come, come, come over and sit by us and tell us a nice it's, story. It's it's fabulous. What's all you need to know? I don't need to say anything more. It's brilliant. For people at home who may may not have encountered this movie, it's, it's basically a film that um, I like and nobody else does. Um, yeah, it's... A film about plane crashes that's not about plane crashes. It's about people from the future travelling back in the past to remove people from plane crashes to take them into the future because there isn't enough people in the future to keep the population going. 
Um, and it's kind of weird and kind of awkward, and it's a romance story that's that's a bit, yeah, it's all a bit all over the place. But at the same time, I kind of like it, and I find it <clears> kind <throat> of interesting, and I like, I like it. I like, I I find it kind of warm and fuzzy, and I kind of like it. It's I don't think it's that romantic comedy, isn't it? Really, I mean, it's 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 completely out there as yeah as, I wouldn't as call, a story. I it's not a comedy. It's, it's more, a it's, science fiction film. It's sci-fi, but it's definitely it's got a romantic kind of thing there going off as well. And it's 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 it, but it's odd. It's kind of a bit of a weird film. It, but you mean it's one of those films you either really like or you really just don't. Yeah, I mean, I read a review of it at the time. Now I thought the review at the time I was like, okay, so uh, while acknowledging that the review made some good points as to why you might not like the movie, I moved past that and i still quite enjoyed it um but yeah this guy really laid into the fact first of all there's a robot in it and the makeup on the robot is done in such a way that you can still see well the the robot guy has got human eyes because right. they don't put in, they're not contact lenses well, he's like Nothing. a bronze just... Crichton from a dwarf isn't he you know yeah I mean? yeah Exactly. But, I mean, you know, what's really weird is that Crichton's makeup was better because this guy had, like, the eyes are really like, and you've got robot, 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 human eyes. And you're like, wow, okay. And the guy was like, that's terrible. It just jarred me shit out of the movie. Didn't really bother me, to be honest. No. And then the other thing about it was that the guy really didn't like all the idea, time quake and all this kind of stuff. Now, the fact of the matter is, that to this day, scientifically, we don't know what time is or how it works. We don't. We really, you know, it's pretty ineffable. There's no way to detect. We can't say what time works. Yes, it's too timey-wimey. But yeah, so therefore, it is possible this is an accurate uh, depiction of what sort of time travel and paradoxes and all that would be like. that, That is possible. Is well, it, as um, long as the rules are established are consistent. That's the only yes. thing I ask. Yes. And I think they are consistent, but the guy believed they were stupid. And and that is it. But then, I mean, the point is that everybody went gaga over Looper recently, and I thought the time travel rules in that were stupid. They were consistent, but I just... Um, to me, they felt stupid. And that's the point. To him, the rules in Millennium felt stupid. And so, you know, that, that's where but I But I liked the whole... I like the whole story of Millennium. I like the fact that he, as a child, survives a plane crash. He's the only survivor of a plane crash. Um, only to find out as an adult later that he actually survived one of these people taking the plane, if you get what I mean. It wasn't actually a crash. The people were taken off the plane and everything that was a body wasn't actually a body and all this kind of stuff. And you know, it's all very odd, but basically he's already met the woman he falls in love with, if you get what I mean, when she when he was a kid and all this kind of it's all very weird and it's all very odd, but I kind of like all of that kind of stuff. I find it all very interesting. Right. Um I think we're sort of getting a bit pushed for time. Well, uh, I really want to talk about one film, uh, if I may. Which is, yes. Well, of course, you know, William Shatner doesn't always <laughs> write and direct and star in a Star Trek franchise movie. But when he does, God is in the cast list. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, let's talk about that. Uh, and then I think the best thing to do to very much finish up is an action movie roundup. Because I'm looking through, we've barely touched on the host of action movies, but we can probably all bunch them into one and talk about them all at once. But first, Star Trek V. Go! Final Frontier. Um, I went to see that one of my brother and we walked out of there kind of quite stunned and laughing to each other about how absurd it all was. Uh, really, you know, we're going to do a, some sort of Star Trek retrospective at some point when we get to a discovered country because I think it's worth looking back on the first six uh, Star Trek movies then. Uh, but, you know, really, what I want to know from you guys is Star Trek V, of course it's a, it's a bad movie because it's just Shatner's ego and how awesome Kirk is. Well, but somebody, the one sentence, uh, the one sentence plot review is: Captain Kirk travels to find God and punch him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, it, in the in the little, little little remembered Star Trek animated series. They go to the center of the universe and find the devil, who turns out to be a misunderstood trickster. Star Trek V. Go to the center universe, find God, turns out to be a complete bastard. So, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, Star Trek V. It's a bad Star Trek movie. No one disputes this. Uh, but Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek V, 
Which is honestly the worst movie? Because if a load of bunch of Star Trek fans burst in here with shot off shotguns and said we have to watch one of these two movies, which one would you be prepared to sit down and watch again? Because I found myself saying Star Trek Five because I'm just so bored watching Star Trek Motion Picture. But whereas Star Trek Five, you can laugh with your mates a bit more, I think, because of how dumb it is. A, p- a pine, please. <laughs> Uh, I might be in terms of agree with you. I mean, I think I think it's you know it's still but but start well if you're comparing it to the first one, that's so not like Star Trek in, um, that it's difficult to enjoy it in the same way. No. So I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I I can't say I've got a huge opinion about Star Trek Five. I mean, I remember watching it and going, yeah, that's kind of stupid. Um, it didn't really irritate me. It, 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 believe it or not, it had a significantly bigger budget than some of its predecessor films. In fact, I think it was had the combined budget of some of its predecessor films, uh, and it almost killed off the franchise. It performed so poorly. Yeah. Were it not for Next Generation, you know, having a beating heart, keeping the franchise alive, we would not have had Star Trek VI, which is which is at least and nothing else a satisfactory end to the original mm. cast. But yeah, Final Frontier, it, it was nearly the end. Uh, my goodness, what were they thinking? Uh, I think you were just, Leo is speechless. He, he has no, nothing I was, to I was say. about to say, and people have leapt in. Uh, all I've got to say is, the one thing I, you know, it's famous. It's famous for Kirk meets God, punches God in the face. What does God, God need with a starship? Yeah, um, and, and it, that's what it's famous for. If you, therefore, with that in mind, you have that front and centre of your mind, oh, this is the one where Kirk punches God in the face, and you sit down and you watch it, you're amazed by how much of the film is not about that. It's about other things that no, happen. It's, yeah, the... William Shatner's... Um, he, he was, it was his, it's his cautionary tale about television evangelicals. Believe it or not, that was kind of, kind of the nub with the bad guy in that one. He, the guy who takes away your pain and thus converts you to his order. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think uh, overall, it, it, because it's got that huge shaggy dog, sto- shaggy god story punchline, <laughs> that overshadows the rest of it. Now, I'm not saying the rest of it is a work of deathless prose and wondrous invention. What I'm saying is that there's this, you know, five, ten minutes of jaw-dropping, uh, <laughs> offensive level yes. we, we awfulness. Meet, we meet God, and it's actually an anticlimax. I mean, it's a bit like... Uh, you came to see this with us, didn't you, Justin? Knowing with Nicolas Cage. God, yeah. Yeah, again, another film oh. in which... Another film which, you know, there's an hour and a half of pointless noodling... And then the last five minutes are jaw-droppingly offensive. Yes. Or at least they should be. <laughs> yes. And that, that kind of overshadows the fact of the pointless noodling happening first. And I think that's one of the things that people have to remember. They don't sit down to Star Trek Five and just get served howlers one after another. It's just this fairly mediocre movie with this one standout moment of inappropriateness. Well, I think, I think we, should, we should cling tightly to Spock as he turns on his rocket boots and he will fly us over the action movies and we shall look down yes. upon them and give our opinions unto them. So, a quick summary. Cyborg, which I've still not seen, which really annoys me because it is there for me to watch that I just haven't bothered yet, but I really want to see this now, knowing that all the sets are repurposed from the second Master of the Universe movie that never got made. So there we go, that's Cyborg uh, is coming up. Uh, we also have, uh, well, Dead Calm is a kind of a thriller that came out in this year. We have uh, God of Gamblers, uh, uh, sort of the first Western whisper of Chow Yun-Fat's career, which is going to become big in the 90s. Heathers is out this year. Obviously, we've got Indiana Jones The Last Crusade. Karate Kid Part 3, Kickboxer, The Killer, Lethal Weapon 2, Lockup the Punisher, which we've already uh, remarked upon, Red Scorpion, Renegades, Roadhouse, um, which you have to say like that. Uh, Tango and Cash, uh, that kind of brings us to the end of that. But that's quite, yeah, 1989 was an action-packed year in that sense of action thrillers and action action and more action and Sylvester Stallone doing some fairly low-key action stuff. Tango and Cash is another one I'm annoyed. I've got it on the DVR. And what I'm really intrigued about that is that is that partnership of Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell. And I think in 1989, two actors could not have, a a pairing of two actors could not have intrigued me less. Mm. I was never a big Stallone fan. And at the time, 
I hadn't really... Kurt Russell is an odd guy because I love Big Trouble in Little China, but I didn't really notice Kurt Russell in it. And it's only when you actually look at Kurt Russell's career, you go, wow, this guy's this guy's got some chops. He's done a load of really good stuff. And then you become a Kurt Russell fan. So as a massive Kurt Russell fan, I now want to see Tango and Cash. And I am intrigued by the possibility of him being paired with Sylvester Stallone. Has it been seen Tango and Cash? No. Yeah, I, I can't remember much. I, I, I just... Yeah, it, was, it wasn't that memorable to me, but I think it was a good fun thing. I seem to remember, and that's about it. I'd, I'd be probably quite interesting seeing it again, actually. Yeah, it, it, it so, strikes yeah. me as some kind of you know, it's it's another eighties buddy cop movie. Yeah, we'd had quite a few of them by this stage. Yes, well, Lethal Weapon and stuff like that. Lethal Weapon Two was out this year. Did I even mention that in the list? I must have done, surely. Yeah, well, um, I've never seen a Lethal Weapon movie in my life. Yeah, you haven't seen any of them, really. Well, the thing is, I wasn't really an action fan. When I watched an action, action movie, it was probably because there was a horror or science fiction element to it. So there's whole swathes of things that I never really saw. I've caught up with most of them with the joy of the internet. But Leaf Weapon remains the great series I have never seen. Okay. Wow. Oh, the early ones definitely worth watching. Well, I'd say, I'd say that they are worth watching. Uh, it's weird, actually, because it's, only It's Mel later... Gibson these days. He's a... Just, uh... Yeah, but then it wasn't, you know. I, I know yeah. was, we know who he, he really is. It's a very good chemistry between him and, and Danny Glover. Uh, they're very watchable on screen, the, the Lethal Weapon films, the banter and everything else. It's got a good spirit to it, so I think they're definitely worth watching. I mean, you know, I mean, I think the way you've got to look at Mel Gibson as well is if there's one person in the world who's really had to search their soul about their latent anti-Semitic feelings, it's probably him, because seriously, you know... At this point, how can he not? And the other thing is, I don't know if you, I don't know. But I think one, what puts me off Mel Gibson more than even that incident is the Passion of the Christ. Yes. I mean, I've not, not even seen it. Well, it the it's, it's just all part of the same bubble for me at this stage. Yeah. Whereas I then, I don't know quite why, but somehow I managed to catch Apocalypto. I made you watch it. Did you make me watch it? Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Sue so made me watch it. I watched it, and I was like, this is actually pretty good. I made you watch uh, it because I was working at the cinema at the time, and I caught most of it at the cinema, and I said to you, we have to watch this, because I've be, been watching it as I was going through screens, and I was enjoying it. Oh, right. I I okay, it. cool. So there we go. So, uh, yes, it's a good movie. Um, and I think that's uh, this, is the sh- this is the big shame of all of that bubble and incident, is the fact that in between all of that, or after that, those incidents, he made Apocalypto, and if it was, if he'd just not done any of that stuff, yeah, absolutely, and made Apocalypto, everyone would go, Mel Gibson is an incredible filmmaker. Well, yes. that, because that after he, Braveheart, he decided to make films to tie into his pet hatreds, so, of which now we're all completely aware of. So that's 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 the problem. The Jews and the English. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, the point is that Lethal Weapon 2, one of the things that's uh, particularly noteworthy, and in fact was noted at the time about the Lethal Weapon 2 series, is its undercurrent. Uh, Murto's family are all incredibly eco-conscious, and so there's a lot of lines in, in the film where they're having family banter about, uh, you know, dolphin-friendly tuna and saving the rainforests. And it's actually like a, a theme in the Lethal Weapon movies that Murtaugh's family have to make some comment about saving the, you know, saving the world ecologically and stuff like that. So yeah, Lethal Weapon has lots of little ticks and things like that that uh, have yeah. become massive standards. So I think they are essential viewing. Uh, yeah, for us a treat there. Treat yourself to watching the first three. Are definitely worth. Are definitely very good. The fourth one's all right. It's got jets. Yeah, I suppose it's all right. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, watch it's, it's no, it's no die, uh, good day to die, die hard. It's no, not, you know, it's... You know what you're getting, they kind of serve up the same thing, so, you yeah. know, it's all good. I think uh, rather than focus there, uh, thereafter on individual titles, because, uh, I mean, you know, what can one say about Roadhouse, except you don't say Roadhouse, you say Roadhouse. Um, that's what you say. Yeah. I always thought of the 1980s 
as an action era. You know, you have a lot of action movies. But this is the first year where you look down the list and you're like, nope, this is it. This is, look at all the action movies that are coming out in 1989. The rest of them are kind of peppered. It's like you get one, two, three in a year. This is the first one that's action-saturated. Yeah, and, and particularly what I remember about 1999, this was the summer blockbuster year because you had Batman, you had you had Back to the Future Part 2, you had uh, Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. They were massive films. It was kind of fairly intense summer period. In a way, therefore, would you say it's sort of prefiguring the tentpole season of the modern day? Yeah, I think so. I think I think very much so. I do remember that avidly that year. It was like, wow, that was, uh, I was kind of bludgeoned to death by these massive films. And kind of, and that was a summer. So yeah, I think, I think very possibly. So uh, we cannot leave the room, I think. I don't want to leave the room without mentioning a long-forgotten movie. I mean, it's interesting, in 1988 we did discuss movies that have just disappeared, such as Young Einstein. And this year we had Eric the Viking. Ah, yes. uh, Which is, you know, I think one of the things was everybody being uh, wowed up that it was like a Terry Gilliam thing and then realising that Terry Gilliam had nothing to do with it um, and then being disappointed. But I don't think it's, it's a bad movie. For that, I, I went into it hoping it was going to be a comedy. And it wasn't that funny. I think. I think. Yeah. I think John Cleese has a few funny bits being the villain. That's just about all the things. That and all the gods being children. That was quite fun. But apart from that, I don't remember much else about it. Vikings, uh, no. longboats, ice. Yeah. I just. I think the point is that most people were tired of any kind of fantasy or whimsical thing at this point as evidenced by just about everything else that came out in that year. I mean, you know, you've got How to Get Ahead in Advertising coming out that year. That has this whimsy of a guy who's, you know, has a spot on his neck that turns into a new head, yeah? But that's very dark, and I think fantasy is going dark at this point. And Eric the Viking, although it had darker moments, also has a lot of sunshine and, you know, Light, silly things. I think that maybe I was expecting this to be another Python-esque film. I think yes. as well. I wanted this it, to be. It, it suffers from the of this day Viking version of Holy Grail or whatever, and of which I was watching an awful lot of up to this, you know, in the eighties. So actually, when I actually got to see it, it was like, oh, this is kind of like a kids' film. This is a bit. Yeah. Just felt flat. I do think that it, it definitely says, you know, if Willow was kind of the last gasp of big screen fantasy, this is the death rattle. It's kind of like, yeah, and then we kind of this spilled out of the side of big screen fantasy's mav and dripped onto the ground before it got scooped up and put on the uh, coroner's slab. So you know, there we go, colourful metaphor. That's a very visual metaphor you painted. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, on that note, we 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 pull the release valve and and we climb into the yellow rubber dinghy on the surface of the water and wait for the rescue helicopter. And only then, to our horror, do we realise we haven't discussed Ghostbusters 2, but think, ah, sod it, I can't be bothered. So instead, (laughs) let us go to our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, so that's 80s. It is our community hub. We post up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting, and very occasionally discussions which we keep promising to get back to. But of course, podcasts are what it's all about. So please point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids.podomatic.com and please go there, and please subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or download the MP3 to your own computer for dark reasons of your own. But uh, we 80s kids can be found elsewhere on the internet, and they will enlighten you where now. Uh, yes, you can find me and an archive of some of our older episodes at leostelford.blogspot.com. I'm going to cease to apologise for not doing the archive, because I'm moving house and it's really stressful. But yes, at some point there will be an archive. Other things are also afoot, because I, I, you know, we have not had... This year's Bridgetown has not yet materialised, but there are things in the works. Um, in the meanwhile, uh, if you uh, happen not to want to read words, but instead want to look at pictures, you might find Justin. And where might they find you? Uh, you can look me up on my Demon Art page under the name Justin Wyatt. Um, and uh, there's plenty of examples of, uh, of uh, stuff from Bridgetown tales and, uh, well, everything else I've been working on over the last few years. So, uh, find me there. 
And now I, I have to say, you know, I don't like to end the show on a, on a note of bad news. But the bad news is we all are now going to have to retire to our caves and oh. consider all the films of the 80s and then pick five, I which don't. are our top five. I no, don't. you don't, because you've already done yours. And, that's and well done. Uh, luckily, we won't have any more mentioning of the incident, so yeah, that's Justin's fine. brain won't be. Yes. So, so, yes, before we can forge forth with the 90s, we must fully consider the 80s and, and pick those top five. In the meanwhile, we are going to have, you know, a, a, a space, you know, a gap show but yeah then the next time we all we all sit together it will be to record the massive top five uh show so yes that's the awesome task that is before us um so until then i think uh, it's probably best if we all say uh goodbye and we shall see you shortly uh for the very very end of the 80s uh so for me bye bye uh, from me uh, goodbye and goodbye from me. dead and I, I feel very sad about that uh, if it's okay with you guys I would like to refer to 1990 as uh, instead the year 1980 10 <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>